Welcome listeners to the Misbehavior Journal Club. I'm Amiel Moreno, PhD, here with Leah Krevit, Banff. And we are two scientifically trained and certifiably funny females bringing you the behind the scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, habits, and humanity. Yeah, we are. So, Leah, what are you addicted to right now? Why? Again, to our listeners, this is not again, because this has never happened before, because we definitely didn't record a version of this that had to be (laughs) (laughs) scrapped for audio quality purposes. What's with the right now? Let let me... Right the second. (laughs) Well, you know, I guess uh, in the past you might have gotten over previous addictions, but I'm figuring in a highlight you're going to be talking about what you're currently addicted to. Yeah, you don't want to really dig into old... That's such a weird question to ask. What you such currently... a weird way to ask it. That's one of the OK Cupid questions. I am the one who asks the weird questions. I recently asked a coffee habit, which... Oh. Yeah. I had never envisioned quitting, not because I love coffee, but just because I lack imagination, <laughs> I guess. Did it have anything to do with the fact that we talked about this uh, in the last uh, recording? That didn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, but no, that's not why. I just no. got sick of having there be a thing between me and the rest of my day. Uh-huh. And it's compounded by the fact that my favorite and most tolerable thermos kicked the bucket a while ago. And so like going Aww. somewhere with coffee isn't like an option without getting another thermos, which is impossible, obviously. Man, it's all and behaviors. Like if there's chemicals in there, but it really is like, do I not have this conveyance mechanism anymore? Now let me rethink the behavior of drinking this substance. Yeah, being like grounded at home for the Mm -hmm. first 10 minutes of any given day. It's like, no, I want to be able to get up and run away. So (laughs) at any moment, go back and start my day from there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I went to undergrad in Seattle, and yet I never Mm. drank coffee. There was like one coffee shop that had something called white coffee, which is like a more processed version of the bean that uh, doesn't have as much of like a bitter flavor. And that place I would go, I would allow myself on Wednesdays when it was double punch card day, I could get one drink of caffeinated substance and that's it. It wasn't until I was submitting an NRSA grant that I became addicted to coffee. I just needed it to function. I was just burning myself (laughs) on both ends. Then I was hooked. So when is coffee a thing that you have a hard time doing without? And if so, when did you notice that? The moment I realized I needed it. No, I don't have a clear one for that. Do you? I remember a day when I noticed it. I was in line uh, at a place where you could get a multitude of food or beverage items. I don't know. It's a it sounds like you tried a- to obscure exactly where you were. Like you don't want to admit you went to Panera Bread. 
<laughs> I don't know why. Anyways. No, it was just this on-campus thing where you grab stuff and they have stuff. Oh, I didn't say it was interesting natures. or that you should tell me more about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you were right to not do that. So, but okay. No, I was, you were in line somewhere that it was had one coffee? Of those, the line snakes through where the food is. So as mm. you're waiting in line, you're like, oh, yay, now I'm at the part where the sandwiches and I grab it mm-hmm. and I hold it until the line takes me to the cashier and when I came around to the part with the coffee it was like do I is I otherwise would not have gotten coffee but mm-hmm. at that point I realized like oh no I actually have to get that or my head will hurt and I'll mm. feel otherwise suboptimal I my whole life I'd been hearing fun little throwaway jokes about being addicted to coffee. But when I first, like, pinpointed that that was a thing that I had gotten myself to a point of needing. Yeah, I was pissed. That was like, that's not fun. That's not I mean, it's light of all of the things that's the best one. But no, it sucked. Apparently, when you're testing people for what drugs they have in their system, Detecting caffeine in the system is fire. Like, we got that taken care of if we were ever to outlaw caffeine and needed to detect okay. who was None of this metabolite it. messiness. It's just, it shows up. It's bright as day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't know why know. that's important. It, it's critical. <laughs> um, when we finally get around to outlawing caffeine, I think we're set up pretty well. Mm-hmm. That's a parallel. You you hit on a parallel that's really important to me, which is um, I remember having discussions in various classes about the bioethics of stimulants, basically, or like cognitive enhancements without the messy side effects of many stimulants. Okay. And um, most of the discussions revolved around should we have like surgeons and war zones and other extremely high-skilled, high-SES professions, like, should they be able to and or expected to take performance-enhancing drugs? What are the ethics of that? And what always got me was these were discussions of a drug that would, like, allow you to stay up longer and work with more without rest. You mean, like, meth? Uh, yeah, like meth, like caffeine, like any of the shit you see in monster <laughs> drinks, like cigarettes. Like, this is already a thing people are doing. They just aren't doing it with these specific drugs, and they're not doing it in the populations that you're writing your papers about right now. Yeah, you'd get a ration of, like, four cigarettes when they send you to the front trench. Yeah. Oh, we could do a whole episode about war drugs. <gasps> I would not be funny. No, 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 war drugs. That's going to be oh, the that's good. intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I've had, <laughs> listen, I've had Cotton Eye Joe stuck in my head all day because no. I learned to use a buttonhole jig. <laughs> okay. Which, what's that? Yeah, just. dear listeners, this is Leah from the future. If you're wondering what the fuck a buttonhole jig is, it's not a thing. It's what happens when Leah forgets how to say the very simple, very, very simple term, pocket-hole jig. Enjoy my folly, as always. It's it's a jig that you use to um, make buttonholes in wood, 
it's like a. Why would you use a, a button hole. in wood? I'm sorry, I sound like an idiot. <laughs> you're fine. No, you're fine. Why would there be a button in wood? A, a pocket hole is like okay. Picture like a a big cylinder coming to take a bite out of wood. Yeah. You know, it could go straight up and down. Yeah. Or it could go perpendicular ish. It could go in at an angle. And then you would have just like an angular bite taken out of the wood. And okay. that lets you screw stuff in at an angle. And it's different than a drill that would give you like a starter uh, hole to drill something larger. You need a chunk of the wood out of there before whatever you're going to do. That's a really good question. I think you could get it done with the method you're describing, but what this lets us do is process a bunch of wood with the exact same, you know, we know where the screws are, we know where shit's going to go. Thank you for that lesson. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've had a cotton-eyed Joe, but with buttonhole jig as the lyrics what are the in lyrics? my head all day. And how Where does that you come go? From? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Button old jig. Are you happy now? <laughs> no, I'm very <laughs> disappointed in my life choices. Uh, so I had an interesting thing happen when I went out with friend of the show, Jeff, to uh, karaoke. He got up to go on stage and did a tool song that is shouldn't be allowed that's too long of a song it's like six minutes long um yeah <laughs> we were just talking about buttonhole jigs and pilot holes and drills and yeah. you said tool song <laughs> i heard song about tools i thought this was like a you know they might be giants <laughs> mm-hmm. a drill is a massive incandescent gas <laughs> No, it was a song by the group Tool, and it had a lot of cuss words in it. While he was standing up on stage, a older woman, perhaps in her 60s, got to the center of the empty dance floor. No one was dancing to a Tool song. <laughs> and crossed her arms and started shaking her head what? back and forth. And what? doing the, like, the flat hand going across her neck, like, cut it out. <laughs> And like doing like a weird point, like anyone seeing this woman could understand that she was not pleased by Jeff's song. And it was so funny because when Jeff like sees the like this woman right in front of him, he's like, yes, like, learn to swim. Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> oh, he said it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> okay. He actually out loud oh. in between lyrics. <laughs> and, He's the sweetest guy. He's the nicest, kindest guy. But when he got back to the table and we were hanging out still, she came up to the table and started complaining about that. That was a bad song. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. We were trying to like, like, okay, sorry about that. Have a good night. Like trying to shoo her away somehow. At one point, like I stood up and I was like, facing away from the table so that like hopefully she'd look at me but like she wasn't responding to any of the things I was saying and she was slurring her speech and she had this huge glass of wine that was almost full to the top and she was sloshing it around then I noticed she had a hearing aid in oh and all of a sudden I noticed that wasn't slurring speech oh shit She was drunk, but all she got out of karaoke was reading the disgusting lyrics of this Tool song. (laughs) That is how you 
get the lyrics to be interpretable. Yeah, you can't listen to that stuff and get the words. You have to read it. It's like karaoke a, is like the only kind of concert where you usually have the. Oh, I, now they oh, always man. have somebody along the side of the stage that's doing sign language. Listeners, she's doing sign language. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was going to cut that break, but now I can't. So she came over to the table and was like, fuck you, fuck you. Straight into Jeff's face. And I realized that, yeah, there was no way to get her attention when she isn't looking at your lips. So as best I could, I tried to like get in front of her and have her look and be like, thank you. See you later. But, um... Yeah, just a fun experience had by all. Damn, I have never thought about the different modalities in which one experiences karaoke. Also, you know, deafness notwithstanding, I love the idea of a character who's very, very drunk and very, very aggressive and very, very anti-profanity. I love someone. <laughs> yeah, I think just... she did say... Fuck you, which she was complaining. What? I think she might have. I'm gonna have to check with Jeff uh, on that one, but I think she was like, "Yeah, like screw you. I don't like you." There, that sounds drunk, but not deaf drunk. That's a hard line. To, I've never thought about the, the distinction between the two before. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I was really trying to toe the line there, and. Um, Expect my letter of resignation on your desk in the morning if this ends up being a problem. Followed by the immediate dissolution of the (laughs) entire operation. Oh, I can't believe, you know, I know the receptor that caffeine works on is the adenosine receptor. And I didn't even drop that knowledge bomb while we were talking about teas and caffeine and coffee. It's so weird that it's something that is sensing how much energy you have and yet blocking that receptor when you've just woken up, when presumably you have tons of stores of energy is like essential for people to wake themselves up if you find yourself in an addicted scenario. Yeah, I have no, I I don't. (laughs) Yeah, it's getting into like, no, no, no. No, it's all relevant. The most intelligent thing I have to say about it is, ah. You've, that's been your go-to a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> this has no correlation with my loss of reading time. Or causation. Okay, uh, let's. <laughs> all right, we're going to be doing some notable news. In this segment, I'm going to briefly present an article that I thought was noteworthy, and it is from the world of science. Science, 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 science. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This comes out of the journal Nature Neuroscience. It's titled Reciprocal Cortico-Amygdala Connections Regulate Prosocial and Selfish Choices in Mice. It's out of the Italian Institute of Technology. The first author is Sigia. I don't know. That's not how you say it. And the last author is Papaleo. When I hear corticoamygdala, I think back all the way back, low those literal many years ago, mm-hmm. to one of the first papers we looked at, which studied connections between basal lateral amygdala and infralimbic, prelimbic cortex? Prelimbic cortex. Cortex! 
You can just say cortex. <laughs> no, you can't. There's so many different types. And besides, that's what this paper is about, is about the connection to the prelimbic cortex. Do you remember hey. anything else about the, the paper that you're describing? Yeah, actually, that was also about social behavior. And at that time, it was a preprint. I'm sure it is published now. Woot. Uh, <laughs> studying the relationships between prelimbic cortical functional anatomy and social defeat response. Mm. So that was the one where they took the subject mice and had them exposed to spooky, scary, big, hairy stimulus mice who were mean to them. Right. So this paper is talking about a social activity as well. Neuroscience has some newly refined rodent models for studying empathy and altruism. Previous work looked at uh, behavior choices that involved an actor, the subject that you're interested in, receiving rewards and uh, providing rewards to others. And in these paradigms, uh, they usually involved the opportunity of the helped individual to eventually reciprocate by helping the actor animal. And thus the actor's generosity could also be benefiting themselves. Like we mentioned, we're going to get into the basolateral amygdala. So the amygdala is a uh, clump of a bunch of different... It's the fear center, right? Yes. The, the center for fear? Yes. I made sure to do some research so that I described the complexity of it so as not to anger the boiling cauldron of lava that is in Leah's heart in case you... That's not... That, over... It's not anger. <gasps> it's shared... <laughs> We are together roasting Aww. the part of you that is wrong. You're so cute I'm, right and now. Me. We're all. That's <laughs> not anger. It's not. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about all the complexity here, but if you're not familiar with the amygdala, it's a ball of a lot of different groups of neurons that are very closely next to each other and mixed together. So it's been a real fun time trying to determine all the different <laughs> sections of it. Uh, the basolateral amygdala receives input from sensory areas, uh, the hippocampus, and areas that deal with uh, producing a lot of important neuromodulators, such as dopamine, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine. And that's from the VTA, the LC, and the basal forebrain. Basolateral amygdala, BLA, I don't, I think I'm going to go back and forth in saying that. The BLA itself signals or has output to that central nucleus. And in this study, they talk about its input to the prelimbic region of the prefrontal cortex. So an area of the brain that, that receives a lot of information from other parts of the brain. And it seems as though its job is to decide on the information that it receives larger decisions on behavior. All right, so the hypothesis here is mice aren't dicks. Um, that's what happens when you don't write a sentence that says our <laughs> hypothesis is. Amia will make up a hypothesis for you. You're welcome. Also, to anyone who has worked with mice, that is quite a controversial hypothesis. <laughs> that is... <laughs> So instead of a hypothesis, what they did is they designed a social decision-making paradigm or a way to place certain choices in front of an animal and see what behavior they do, depending on things that we change about the environment or their brains. 
They did this to test non-reciprocal altruism. So there's no benefit that the actor mouse could possibly get from the animal that it's acting on in terms of like getting a benefit later from them. They looked at the activity and the output of the BLA in this uh, social decision-making scheme. I like that you specified that in the non-reciprocal context, it's not going to get anything out of that mouse later. You can still get all the brain juices of going, hmm, I'm a good mouse. I'm such a good fucking mouse. (laughs) So good at being a mouse. Look at that other mouse. It's better now, and I did that. Yeah. My dad mouse was so wrong about me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That second grade mouse school teacher. It's all wrong. (laughs) 20 second tangent. Put 20 seconds on the clock. Okay, tell me. All right. In... When I was a small child, reading age, uh, when I was a child, I read a book <laughs> called The School Mouse about a mouse in a family of mice. They lived in a school. She was a little nerd mouse and she oversaw lessons. She she eavesdropped on reading lessons. And so she learned how to read. And so okay. when they put out poison for all the ma- <gasps> mice, she was the only one who was able to warn oh. her other mouse brethren and be like, you're going to die if you eat that. And they were like, fuck you, dumb little mouse. And <gasps> they, a lo- they ate it. And they, a lot of them did. Um, and then they escaped from the school and there were hawks or owls or whatever. But the point is... Is this just the- mice water shipped down? <laughs> no, it was a lot better than rabbit shit. <laughs> rabbit shit down is oh. what came out of my mouth. Oh, hell no. I love that fucking book. How dare you? I Malign. slugged through that book like a lake of concrete. I fucking oh. hated that shit. It did what not speak to me at all. What is wrong with you? Oh. To be fair, I wasn't paying attention. I was 11 and I did not want to be doing any of that. Mm. But you yes. might want to go back and visit it. It's I uh, don't think I do. Oh man, I'd buy you a copy if you did it. Okay. Ooh, ooh, you have a big trip that's coming up where you're going to be stuck in a car. If I bought you the audiobook, would you give like audiobook. the first couple chapters a listen? Getting you a present. Getting no, a pre- because Damn music. It. Sorry. Music sucks. I don't can't tell you how many times I've been listening to a song and halfway through I'm like, ah, I know how this ends. And I fast forward <laughs> to the next song. <laughs> I so want to unpack that. Oh, I'm gonna bring that up at the end of this episode, but for now, let's uh let's Woo! end this 20 second tangent. We're having anyway, too much fun. Okay. I thought um, it was kind of fucked up that the moral of the story seemed to be if you learn to read, then you can earn your way out of genocide. Which like doesn't it hurt. rings true, but it's that's that's a lot for a kid. How about and being also, smart is important and will help you? Y- yes, yes, yes. But also <laughs> but also poisoned mice. I prefer the more fucked up thing. Wow. Yes. All right. So Interesting. Um, Interesting book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the methods here. So they wanted to uh, do what other people have done, uh, which is study complex pro-social behavior in rats and, and other rodents. It's not so new. But the authors felt that perhaps this is the first time that mice were put in a complex social interaction model that allowed the mice to reward only themselves or both themselves and their partner in an adjoining compartment. So what does that look like? There's a 
cage. There is a actor mouse that I've used that word before. I hope this makes more sense when I describe the cage. And in that section of the cage that the actor mouse is in, there's two nose pokes, which can activate delivery of food to them or to them and another compartment in the cage. That other compartment in the cage is visible through like a mesh window. And they tested different windows to see what could facilitate the interactions more. But in that other compartment is the receiving mouse that might or might not get treats based on what the actor mouse does. So this is like a social behavior that's reminiscent of altruism. I liked the author's use of the word reminiscent. Good choice. That's an awesome choice. This setup. First of all, everything I'm going to say is going to be said by someone who did not read the fucking paper. Boo his boo. Boo his boo. This one was interesting. So, in my completely uninformed opinion, fully, this setup does sound to be good and complex, which is great, and I'm really into that. Love that for us as a field. That sounds dismissive. I don't mean it to be. Um, that's just okay. the way I talk when I sometimes it feel happens. a sincere thought coming on. I gotta push it sometimes away. Sometimes you need those the... those descriptions you see in scripts that says said genuinely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For all of the very good, real good things about this good model, it still is what I like to call a jacuzzi model. You know, there's that old saying about how, um, uh... Dangerous for pregnant women? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, life is horrifying. Pregnancy is horrifying. Jacuzzis, apparently, are microbially horrifying. Or whatever else they do. Extra cooks the baby. Just get... No, you... I think you can take... I am not going to dispense <laughs> any kind of medical advice to anyone. <laughs> yeah. Okay, if I'm going to talk about something I don't know shit about, let's get back to me talking about this paper. There's that old saying in animal behavior that studying sexual behavior in a little shoebox cage is like studying uh, swimming behavior in a dolphin in a bathtub. I'm butchering it a lot, but, you know, the image is there. The image gets conveyed. And yeah, that sucks. You can still do some stuff, and that stuff sure is important. But like, if you think you're going to get the whole picture, you're thinking dumbly. And so there are these much improved methods and much more complex models and arenas and social setups. And they are like testing dolphin swimming behavior in a jacuzzi. You know, it's bigger, it's better, and you can get more stuff. But it's not a fucking, it's not even a pond. Which, again, is fine. See, Amiel, I don't know if this has anything to do with my quitting caffeine. I'm sure it doesn't. I've recently made peace with the inadequacies that are inherent in, like, most models of stuff. I've recently learned yeah. how to deal with modeling stuff. Not sure. intellectually. I, that's decades ago, a, de a decade ago, but like emotionally. <laughs> like I learned how to stop even expecting models to take on more than they're meant to take on. That's great. Because when we're modeling things, it's most important to hold as many variables constant as possible. And that it's is sometimes. near impossible in the real world. 
in many ways. I have I have two bones to pick on that front, but instead of picking them, I'm gonna not because that's just the sort of peaceful hippie I've become. <laughs> this is Telia. Yeah, this is Telia. <laughs> I hate her. Did you say you hate her? What? No, me. <laughs> I looked away for a second. <laughs> Okay, so what did they find? They found that mice are altruistic. Uh, They like being altruistic over selfish decisions in general. Mice are willing to be altruistic even if it costs them a lot of energy or time. For example, when the number of nose pokes necessary to give their compatriot a treat (laughs) increased too much, they would decide to just take one nose poke and give themselves something. Interestingly... Female mice had a lower bar for how much they would actually poke extra to help out their roommate versus the male. So the female would only go up to like six nose pokes extra before tapping out and the males went up to like eight. Hmm. So what made you more likely to be altruistic? It depended on the familiarity with the receiver mouse Uh, with closer familiarity, breeding, more altruistic behavior. It depended on the sex of the actor mouse, like I just described, as well as social hierarchy. So dominant mice, and then because of the sex aspect, dominant male mice were far more altruistic in their choices than subservient. (laughs) Right. That's not the right word, but no, I don't know is. the right word. It's, it's the rightest word. That's the word we're using from now Subordinate, on. Subordinate. Subservient mice. Subservient. Submissive. Submissive. Uh, sub mice. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Let's just go. Uh, but I'm always going to sub scene. in subservient. So it's <laughs> like, why is that wrong? But it, I know it is. It sounded wrong coming out of my mouth. Fuck. Okay. Whatever. Subservient sub mice and subspace <laughs> don't like to share their treats. Okay. They also did something with the state matching, which was, uh, you know, kind of how you can tell if an animal uh, has been able to absorb emotions from another animal. You make the receiver mouse, in this case, uh, experience some foot shocks, and so they'll freeze, and they'll be kind of scared, and you allow the actor mouse to watch because you're a sick bitch, and (laughs) you measure how much freezing behavior the actor mouse, the one that was not shocked... How much freezing did they experience? Well, the ones that froze more, as if as if they had received contagious emotions of fear from the mouse that actually experienced the shock, those mice that froze more were more altruistic in general. Great run. I want to make one little note about freezing behavior. And I've said this before, so it, it won't be long, that I hope is true. Uh, freezing behavior can come along with many, 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 many different kinds of internal states. Uh, it's most commonly associated experimentally with fear-related behaviors, but there's also just kind of basic attention. Like, think about how much time any given animal spends in its day just going, what was that? Was that... Was that something? Was mm-hmm. that... Did you... Yeah, and in this case, you would be describing the animals that are freezing more as being more observant. So maybe it's just more observant animals are altruistic because they're observing more frequently their compatriots. In fact, 
the altruistic mice spent more time socially engaging or socially closer physically along that meshed border with the receiving mouse than non-altruistic mice. And if all of this is really revving you up and you want, uh, you're, you're interested, <laughs> well, then contact me through direct messenger and uh, we can work out some sort of uh, oh payment system where I can oh continue to rub you whichever way you would like. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> you might enjoy looking into uh, comparative social vigilance, basically. Like so many different species in so many different environments have very different setups for like who stands watch mm. and who sounds the alarm when some shit's about to go down. There's a whole rainbow of setups and all of those animals have brains. So the researchers also shut down the basolateral amygdala and silencing it abolished the preference for altruistic choices. They could even get more specific when they silenced the projections, the output that the BLA sent to the prelimbic area of the cortex. That also abolished the preference for altruistic choices. So it seemed as though the BLA was required for these altruistic choices to take hold and to be displayed. And this is a new extension of the BLA into a social decision-making altruistic-like realm. Uh, the conclusions that they made were that the uh, BLA is responsible for developing altruistic actions and social value, kind of mixing those information pieces together and coming up with something to send to the pre-limbic area. While the pre-limbic area, I didn't quite get into this because it was a bit long. No, I didn't really get into this because it's so cool and I want you to be able to read it yourself. The pre-limbic system sent information to the BLA that was more controlling self-interest decisions. So almost pushing for selfish decisions to be made. So in the end, uh, they found more information on how the BLA plays a critical role in examining the rewards and the costs that are associated with social behavior and guiding decision-making. All right. All right. Yeah. And good for them. That was a pretty well-written paper. I didn't have time to explore every single nook and cranny of it, but it was so well-written that I was able to get the information that I needed. That's really what you want from a paper is one that you, the person doesn't have to read every word to be able to understand your main points. Yeah. No, that is not a given. It's time for Pointless Educational Games. And now we're going to send you out to a game that uh, Leah has crafted for us. We hope you enjoy that. And... Uh, I was going to say, like, current us will be right back, but that doesn't make sense. Mm. God damn it, space-time continuum. <laughs> so what we're going to do, we in the future... Well, okay, so you're listening to this in the future, which is your present. We, in our future, but listener, your past, are going to insert audio that was recorded in all of our pasts. Mm. Uh, and we're going to play that in in your future and then further in your future <laughs> you're going to hear us in our future but like our immediate future is this fun is this entertaining are you glad you downloaded the show well here's the game <laughs> hey, Emil. yeah 
you know how people do things? Like that's a that's a thing people do is uh things. Yeah. People do like a lot of different things. Yes. And the things that they do are like for reasons. And sometimes those reasons are good, and sometimes they're different. And one of the most important things is that we're often really bad at explaining them, whatever those reasons may be. Okay. However, there is a really fun corner of human behavior where people speak quite rationally about their highly irrational behaviors. Church? Yeah, there are a lot of churches with smart people in them. That's part of why I wanted to study neuroscience is to understand how people I respect so much intellectually can come to conclusions that are so different from mine. Just like the development of electroencephalography being inextricably tied with the search for a neural signature for telepathy, sometimes even the most rigorous of scientists do things for very silly reasons. And that Mm -hmm. is something I would love to explore in a new game called Superstitions. Ooh. Yeah. That's, do, do you get it? The name is like, like no. Superstitions, but yeah. Supra, which is a Yeah, like the car. Sciencey... <laughs> is, is that actually a car? Yeah, Supra is huh. a car. Yeah. I didn't know. You didn't, you weren't talking about the car? <laughs> I am now. We yeah. both are now. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about a silly play on words that I did, which is taking the word superstition and making it unnecessarily neuroanatomy vocabby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm going to do right now is share some experimental superstitions with you in sets of three, because things come in threes or they don't. What you have to do is identify which of those three practices is completely made up. Two are real. One is made up. Two are things that people do. One is something that nobody does. You just made up. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that. You're right that two are things that people have been documented doing. And one is one that I just made up. And and we're not someone completely on the sure does that it. nobody has ever done it. Come on. Get a little yeah. grace. Get some grace. Yeah. Like you made it up still. It's not grace. And it's, it's maybe. Accuracy. <sighs> okay. Yes. That's a deep. That was Grace just there. Did you see that? (laughs) Grace in action. Are you ready to play? Yes! Good! Which of these three practices has not been reported on? One, knocking on wood after saying that something is going well, to the extent that one brings in a wooden figurine to keep on top of the instrumentation because there's otherwise, like, no wood in the chem lab. These are things that people do or don't do in lab. Yes. Okay. So one, knocking on wood. Two, praying specifically to the holy goat before trying a difficult synthesis. Okay. We all know what the holy goat is, so that makes sense. And three? Three, threatening instruments with a ball-peen hammer. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know if that's quite a superstition, but um, I like I like the idea that somebody did it once and then the ball-peen hammer just didn't make it back into the toolbox <laughs> and just stayed by the instrument. Um, you're being funny, but that is a wonderful illustration of, like, one of the mechanisms for developing a superstition. Or, I mean, any fucking behavior. Okay, now 
Two of these are things that uh, people have done in lab. One of them is uh, something that Leo creatively made up. I'm going to say the goat is what you made up. You are correct. Yes. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. I worry that I made it too easy, but the thing is, I actually read that holy goat report in an article published in the Journal of Immaterial Science, which is a parody journal. They, they published like a fake paper about how to improve your yield in this synthesis reaction. Okay. And the Holy Goat was mentioned by name. Okay. So okay. it is a thing. Great. <laughs> yes. It is a thing. It's just a fake thing. We're both from behavior land and people do some fairly weird things there. I'm going to describe to you three protocol modifications that have been made. You tell me which one has only been made in my head. Okay. A researcher has a pattern of canceling her Friday night plans when she is training mice. Okay. There that's is. Just, that just sounds like being a scientist. <laughs> I mean, but, but please go on. Maybe the other ones sound like being a scientist too, and I won't be able... Yeah, let's hit it. <laughs> there is a researcher who always uses the exact same shampoo, conditioner, and deodorant when she's in the middle of running mouse behavior. Again, makes logical sense. All right, and the third? There is a researcher who, when he catches wild birds for his research, before he releases them back into their homes, he kisses them and says, live long and prosper. We may have to edit the... What? Uh... There was something I was thinking about saying that is not worth saying. Well, that makes me think that the last one is not one that you made up. I was worried about that. I don't think the middle one is one that is absurd when you're dealing with uh, working with animals. You want smells to be the same. I'm going to go with the first one, cancel Friday night plans. That's a really good thought. This is kind of a trick question. It's not a fun game mechanic. I'm very sorry. What? Always using the same shampoo and conditioner and deodorant. No one has ever done that for luck. I made that up as a superstition, but it is just a regular old lab practice that people do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry I ruined the mechanics of the game. Yay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. MacGuffin on that one. So I lost that one. You wouldn't think it's possible for a host to lose a game question, but they what can't. If, and I know this has happened before. Oh yeah, win Ben Stein's money. It's his money that he's <laughs> losing if you win. I'm just picturing Wheel Fortune where the guy like, God damn it, like reaching in his pocket to pull out <laughs> his checkbook. Yeah. Fucking buy a goddamn vowel, you cheap bitch. Spend the money! Get the A! Alright, yeah. <laughs> next question then. Alright. Electrophysiology is a struggle with which many are familiar, if only blissfully in passing. Mm-hmm. The special frustration with electrophysiology is that while you are recording a neuron, you are often also at least stabbing it, or at best giving it like the kiss of death. You're putting an electrode on something, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know if you know this about brain cells but like they don't like being poked or stabbed Hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah even if you stick like the kindest smoothest glass in there it's still like hey what the fuck is happening and so it's very common to be recording from cells and have them just die on you mid-trial yeah it's a tough practice is that what you're saying that is what i'm saying again hug an electrophysiologist if you see one and they want one 
So, Amiel, what if I told you there was a researcher who, on recording days, always eats lunch at the same hot dog shop? Okay. All right. That is hot dog versus... Hot dog versus the next two. Archaeology digs are tough in a lot of ways. With all of the problems that can come up, think of it as like outside crystallography. You have a lot of variables to work with and sometimes luck is just not on your side. What if I told you that there was a special piece of rock that has an eye drawn on it and kind of looks like the Loch Ness Monster's head that is called Rock Ness and watches over archaeologists? Okay. Are you ready for number three? Yes. You might be familiar, but I'm not sure if our listeners are. There is a company called Thor Labs. Mm -hmm. They make equipment for things like stereotaxic surgeries, which are used to do very specific brain stuff to individuals, and all manner of instruments. When you order something from Thor, the thing you ordered comes, and they also give you a little snack box. It's about half the size of a box of tissues, there is a lab. What if... Jesus Christ on a dick, I am not good at this. What if I told you, Amio, contestant, player yes. of this game, which is a real game that I'm good at administering. Uh-huh. <laughs> what if I told you that there was a mini altar constructed of those Thor Lab snack boxes in an optogenetics lab? And that placing a piece of candy at that altar uh-huh. <laughs> may or may not bring you good luck. I love this one. Yeah, everyone who has been in a lab has seen the Thor lab box of candy and treats and thought, oh, I want one. Mm-hmm. The Wells Fargo wagon just starts playing in your head. Coming like down the street, I don't know to see. It could be someone for something who has no relation, or it could be, yes, it could be, yes, it really, surely could be something special, something really, really special. Just for me. <laughs> I got a bag of nutter butters on Monday. Yeah, I was in that song. Like, yeah, okay, that sounds like something you were. Okay, so Guys and Dolls and Music Man. Yeah. When, when was this? In high school. Oh, nice. Okay. I'm guessing that an electrophysiologist really thinks that the salt on the hot dogs is helping them out. So I'm going to say that one's real. And I'm going to go with the Rockness Eye Monster Rock. I'm so fucking happy because I fucked up the second one and you got the first one right. So I'm like, oh, is this just going to be too easy across the board? No, that's a real thing that real people do because I love real people and they're great. So which one was the fake one? The Thorlab altar. Ah. Thorbon's altar. Yep. Ah. One of the greatest marketing stories in this very specific subdomain of biotech we occupy. <laughs> the the Thorlab boxes. Yeah. If you give people candy, so. they'll be happy. They will. And there are long nights at lab where those things mm. become very useful. Except they suck. <laughs> the treats that they put, granola bars that they put in there, aren't really the best things to eat, but you're desperate and you're so yeah. hungry. And I'm so glad that electrophysiologists decided to go with hot dogs every day. Okay, yes. Let me fill you in on that, because there's more. This was described in a nature write-up from 2017. That's where I got most of these. Oh, good. It's documented. Very important. (laughs) Okay, the first thing I did was just search for Twitter threads I'd bookmarked where people talk about this stuff, and it is voluminous. People do so much weird shit. Yeah, so there are a couple fun write-ups. 
on superstition and science. And um, first of all, the behavior training one was that um, one student routinely calls off her Friday night plans because in the past, when she's canceled, I've been directly quoting this whole time, she's noticed that she had greater success with training the mice. On the next day? I'm not sure. I'm sorry, that's a stupid question. question. But like, you know what's funny about me asking that question is that like, that's going to impart some important information for me to have. <laughs> like, knowing that, is she training the next day? Does it improve the next day? Or does it carry over to Monday? It's going to make a real big difference in my life. What is the mechanism? Yeah, exactly. How long does it, is it a training session? Or is it a training trial that's improved? <laughs> that was the final question. Well, thank you so much for putting that together for us, Leah. You are so much Okay, I, I'm i gonna say a default, you're welcome, and it's gonna sound fake, because it is, but I am very happy that you were down for playing this game, because looking it up taught me a lot about delightful things. Well, so, yeah. it was content that I didn't want to make. <laughs> I am always desperate for that. Keep in mind, people, if you donate over $20 to our Patreon, you can come on the fucking show or tell us what to talk about. Just another hey. little bonus thing about our Patreon subscriptions. Hell yeah. As all games should, let's go ahead and end this on a bleak note. Great. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly the tone. Actually, I've got a good story about a bleak note. I was at a networking event for Emory alumni, and I brought a handsome man date with me, and this really plucky young girl came over to our table to start to talk to us. And how did it get bleak? Okay. So she was really excited about starting new ventures, finding out the best way to be productive, secrets to success. And for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to, okay, I don't know. I don't know exactly how I phrased it, but basically what I said was I somehow got to the point of, well, really, all of us have a day in our future where we're going to die, and we just don't know what that day is. So I'm going to go get some more pot stickers. I mean, if I'll be right back. Does anyone want anything? (laughs) I love the so. The so is really doing a lot of work there. (laughs) Her face. I did it just to see her face, but some unfortunate flack hit my lovely date, who was not expecting someone to say that. (laughs) What kind of flack can arise from that? How could anyone respond to that with anything? Well, no. Okay. Okay. There's a little bit of friendly fire. (laughs) <laughs> Somebody unintentionally was shocked. I have a friend who is my memento mori buddy. Like we send each other sometimes like other examples of mementos mori in historical art, or sometimes just a you know here's here's a picture of flowers. What's, You're gonna die. What's a memento mori is a uh, just a little a little fun thing that reminds you. That you're going to die someday. Those fancy paintings that rich people got their Mm -hmm, wives that had Mm -hmm. a whole thing of fruit and or flowers. And some of the flowers were dying. And that was supposed to tell the women that, hey, you better be okay because you're going to get all old and gross. So (laughs) better be a good (laughs) wife or I'm going to find another one. Oh, shit. Right? Wouldn't wouldn't that be like, in that painting, if that's the purpose of that painting, it would make sense for there to be like another bowl right next to it with like much (laughs) 
staying in the wings. (laughs) No, if anything, it's a plant with fruit that hasn't ripened yet. Knowing how Jesus Christ, yeah, men are, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, good, good bleak note. That's a great bleak note to end on. Good game, good game, bruh. Good game, good game, good game. (laughs) And that was pointless. Woo! Wasn't that fun, Leah? What a fun game we did play in the past. (laughs) Object (laughs) true. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. So it's time for closing ceremonies, and this is where we share takeaways. The takeaway is something that we share with you for your enlightenment, or it's maybe a personal goal that we're working on, or something that we think will bring you joy until we get to see you at the next journal club meeting. Mine is uh, something that I've been believing and thinking for a while. I remember receiving from what appeared to be a credible source information (laughs) on how we detect the temperature in our environment. I'm bringing this up because winter's coming and there are areas in your body that perhaps if you take care of keeping them warm, it will give you a better ability to keep your entire body feeling warm. Those are areas where the blood tends to come closer up to the surface of the skin, such as the wrists, your ankles, and your neck. And that might be why we have developed scarves, woolly socks, and mittens. And it goes the other way, too. When you're really, really fucking hot and maybe a little dehydrated, running cool water on the inside of your forearms, back of your neck, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's where you want to do it. And it, it feels like your thirst is being quenched. It's Mm. fucked up. It's full synesthesia. (laughs) I really wanted to find a citation for that fact. And I was struggling before the show to determine that. So I think I'm going to have to rethink sharing that fact in the future until I can determine if it's actually true or not. Oh, so your lesson is about imparting lessons with caution. Yes. So my takeaway is, uh, well, now it's that. (laughs) (laughs) What's your takeaway, Leah? My takeaway is inspired by yours. No. Uh, Sorry, not sorry. It's a, you'll. I thought you were a sloth. That's what it says right here. Leah. Okay. Colon. I'm a sloth. (laughs) No period. (laughs) Tea, tea is just water run through plant matter. And uh, you know who else drinks water that's been run through plant matter? Sloths! Yay! Yay! Okay, now onto the thing you just said. God damn Um, it. (laughs) If you're trying to explain vaginal or rectal micro-tearing to someone who's too young to really get into that detail with, I'm talking like... You know, something that comes up all the time when you're hanging out with your niece or nephew and they're like... Auntie Leah, what's <laughs> vaginal tearing? <laughs> or like when you're helping a teenager do a high school report on HIV and they're like, okay, cool, what's HIV? Uh, that that was my context. But talking about how blood vessels can be close to the surface and like messed with in okay. a non-traumatic, horrifying way um, is somewhat difficult but it can be done using analogies like your nasal mucosa or your scalp. 
So what I ended up talking about is uh, mentioning a a friend who got like a very shallow cut on her scalp, Mm -hmm. but because the scalp is so vascularized, it bled and bled and bled and bled and bled. And it was extremely disturbing. And we were goths, so it was fun. But uh, (laughs) I want pictures of Leah as a goth. We were the young goth without actual money of our own. So it was, you know, mostly internalized and aspirational. Anyway, there are many different ways to talk about bodily phenomena with people who need to understand physiology. And if you if you can't stomach or you find it professionally dicey to get very explicit about the exact stuff you're talking about, you can find some good parallels that relate to even a kid's everyday life. There are a lot of things that have biology in them that are alive, because that's what biology is. And so your access to other analogies is endless if you just let... What? What? What's that? What's going on? Okay, I know I just talked about learning to deal with the fact that not all models are going to be comprehensive, and that's not what they're for, and that's fine. But I did run into a terrible analogy for the cell. Um, So there's a relatively common lesson plan out there using the analogy of a cell as a city, and I cannot advise against it strongly (laughs) enough. (laughs) There's no good way to do that shit. (laughs) Um, not least because we build cities and cells just sort of happen. And I know oh, cities yeah, just sort of happen too, but... We don't have to... Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Don't do... Don't... Are you thinking about don't, it? Don't. don't think about it. <laughs> the analogy for the road system should be the cytoskeleton. This fucking Teachers Pay Teachers charlatan wrote the endoplasmic reticulum. The endoplasmic reticulum is in no way, shape, or form analogous to a road system in a city. It's fucked. Please no, follow the show on Twitter at MisbehaviorJC and Instagram at the same thing. I've been Amiel, and you can find me at CurlsPhD, and you can find Leah at Hawks and Socks, and that's H-O-X. Thank you for allowing us into your auditory pathway. We hope we eventually sent signals to your amygdala. Please tell your friends, <laughs> tell your enemies, just do not tell your PI. You can subscribe you can rate us we'd love any of those things we really appreciate it when you do mm-hmm. that and we hope you join the club again soon and don't forget to misbehave <gasps> just coffee with cigarettes coffee with cigarettes just coffee.